0: Good afternoon and welcome to In Awe by Bruce. Today on the phone we have Dina Davidson and I'm gonna read right off of her website what she says about herself. Uh, This just meant more to me than writing it up. She says, I love Jesus. I have the best husband in the world. I'm the mom to the cutest little Riley Grace. I love my big family more than anything. I have my dream job. I love learning, reading, the British flag, philosophy and running charades. I can't multitask. My favorite TV show is the West Wing and my husband takes me on adventures. Officially, I'm the campus life director of Thrive School. And Thrive School is located in Northern California and its goal is to bring people that go there closer to God and their purpose and to help them in a one or two year program take their passion and move it into their career. And so that's that's part of the school and it includes things along the lines of discipleship and internship, which both lead to leadership. So she's the uh, officially the campus life director of the school. Every two years, she runs the Thrive Apologetic Conference at Bayside Church. Then she says, unofficially, my office is a place of laughter, crying, and the peculiar mess of making disciples. And I read that because I just feel in reading Dina's blogs and and everything else about her, I just get the feeling of a real authentic person, and so we're very happy to have Dina on the show today. Thank you for coming on, Dina.
1: Thanks for having me, Bruce.
0: No problem, and just to kick it off, I I like to start off with finding out what it is or where it is that uh, people really came from. What was it that happened in your life that brought you along these lines of what you're doing right now, because you say it's your dream job, so what was it that God did that got you here?
1: Mm. Well, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be an actress. So when I was a youngin, that was my dream job. And that has nothing to do with what I'm doing nowadays. <laughs> um, but when I was about 16 years old, I felt like God was inviting me to be in full-time vocational ministry. Mm-hmm. And I'd grown up in a pastor's home, so I definitely knew what that call to ministry would look like. Okay. I kind of knew what I was signing up for. And initially my response when he gave me that invitation was, I thought, gosh, that just sounds like the most boring life possible. <laughs> and I'd really rather be an actress because I love acting. I love you know, doing all this theater. So that was my plan. But the longer I talked with God about it, the more he started to create in me just this excitement for what it could be to devote my life to strengthening the church. Mm. And really what he defined for me that my role would be within the church would be to tell people who God is and to help the church become the church. Mm. And the more I thought about that and dreamed about it, the, the more excited my heart became.
0: Wow. So this is almost like the, the verse, I think from Habakkuk, where without a vision, the people perish. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of gave you a vision of what could happen and, and the purpose of your life, which so many people are looking for. Amen. All yes, he right. did. Wow, that's great. So you uh, moved into this life. Were there things or certain people that inspired you that maybe in times when you were not feeling as excited, uh, or maybe there weren't times when you weren't as excited, but were there people that, you know, inspired you in ways that just said, wow this can be even bigger than I originally thought, or I can do this too with my life.
1: Well, first and foremost, both of my parents modeled an authentic relationship with Jesus all Mm -hmm. growing up. And that was essential for me. Being a ministry kid, a pastor's kid, there was no difference between what my dad would preach from the pulpit and how he lived at home, and same Uh. for my mom. So getting to grow up in a household where Jesus was mentioned every single day And more than just in the way that, you know, this, this God in the sky exists, but he was brought into our everyday conversation. So we would talk with him. We would make our decisions in light of what he said. And it was really what I saw in my parents that first drew me to God and made me even consider devoting my life to serving him. So I'd say definitely my parents first and foremost, and Along the way, I was really blessed to have some amazing church leaders pour into me. So youth pastors, youth leaders, small group leaders, they really saw something in me. And mm-hmm. you know, there there were moments growing up where I'm sure I was not too easy, but they overlooked all my flaws and they decided, wow, I see something in this this young girl and I'm gonna give her the opportunity to lead. So from mm-hmm. a young age, I was I was invited in and i wasn't told that i needed to wait to become a part of the church rather from the youngest of ages i was made a part of the church
0: wow so that's a blessing that a lot of people haven't had where you've got parents that are you know so involved in the church and and in life with god and also modeling it for you that That's got to be a big big plus. Was it anything that other people looked at and said, wow, that's great? Or did people look at it and go, wow, that's weird? How how was it (laughs) when you grew up?
1: Sure. I think a lot of my friends probably thought that we had some really crazy, strict rules. Mm -hmm. And so they could probably see the faith of my family, you know, more from the rules aspect. Yeah. But for me, living inside my parents' home, for me, it was the moments... Like Every night before I would go to bed, um, every single one of us kids, and there are five kids in our family, my dad would say a prayer for each and every one of us individually. And so literally until I got married and left my father's home, Mm
0: -hmm. I was
1: prayed for every single night by my dad. Wow. So moments moments like that. And then also moments where my mom would, she would create this environment for us where we would actually do morning devotions together. We would read from the Bible and we would discuss it. And, you know, there were moments in my childhood where I thought that was so corny, but (laughs) looking back, I am so grateful for those moments because reading the Bible out loud, that just became normal. That was something that we could do as family. Um, We called Hmm. them read alouds.
0: That's great. That is very cool. Yeah, I had had no experience like that. So it's it's just nice to hear how, how you grew up. I know, I'm sure, you know, as we all are as growing up, we we have times where we look and we go, oh, my gosh, what's happening here?
1: Oh, um, absolutely. I was just gonna say my parents were by no means perfect. They would never claim that. Mm-hmm. And, but I sometimes think that parents think it has to be, you know, they have to be these perfect Christian examples but yeah. for me, it was actually in the very simple things. And I had parents who were pastors, so I, I had the complex examples. But yeah. the most meaningful parts of my childhood were those simple moments, moments where my dad would pray over me, moments where my mom would read just a simple Bible chapter to me. She would buy me gifts that were Bible themed. It was really the small things that added uh-huh. up over the course of my life that made a
0: huge difference. Oh, that's great. Good for you. so so you went on, you you got married. You have a degree in philosophy as well as apologetics, correct? I do. Yes. What led you to take those on and <laughs> and I want to dive in then more to the apologetic side of it here in a minute, but because uh, I think it's so important. But go ahead. what what got you there?
1: So, I wanted to get a Bible degree, but my secular university in my hometown I actually had a full ride scholarship. So just for financial and wisdom reasons, I decided to attend there. So there was no Bible degree. So I was trying to figure out what I would major in. And I ended up simply loving my philosophy classes. (laughs) Honestly, much to my parents' dismay. (laughs) You know, that was not their plan, was for their homeschooled Christian daughter to go off to a secular university and major in philosophy. But I fell in love with it. I loved loved the— practice of asking the deep questions and trying to find the best answers. Mm. So I just decided purely out of love of learning that that's what I wanted to spend my time studying. So I ended up majoring in philosophy and, and there were definitely moments along that journey where there was the experiential side of my faith. Yeah. But I, I had to come to grips with the fact that there were moments in my, in my undergrad, where I had lost the rational part of my faith, mm. simply mm. because some people had asked me questions that I didn't have the answer to.
0: Mm. How did you hold on to that and get back onto your solid ground?
1: The moment when I realized, wow, my rational faith is gone, at least temporarily. At that point, I had just met too many Christians who had the story, oh, I used to be a Christian, Mm. And, and that devastated me when I would meet people who would say, oh yeah, I used to be a Christian. Wow. And so I would ask them, you know, why, why, why are you no longer a Christian? And every single time it was because someone had asked them a question that they didn't have the answer to. And so when that happened to me, I had gotten so tired of hearing that narrative, that Mm. I just decided I didn't want that to be my story. Yeah. So I decided if I'm going to walk away from my faith, it's going to be because there's not a good answer, not Mm -hmm. simply because there's a question. Mm -hmm. What I ended up doing is I created a journal and I started writing down all of the questions that I didn't have answers to. And it was a lot. There were a lot of questions in that journal. And I knew that I would one day be in an environment where I could find good answers to these questions. And so I decided to just hold on to my faith and pray and hope that there would be a great answer one day.
0: Huh. Have you found the answers to all those questions in that book?
1: <laughs> so that's the crazy thing. I actually have. I went on to, after I graduated, I decided I wanted to hear the Christian version, and I wanted to seek out the great answers to these tough questions. So I ended up pursuing my master's and, and earning it in Christian apologetics, And while I was there, it was like this entire world of Christianity that I had never been exposed to was opened up to me. And I remember sitting in class and being lectured by professors who were brilliant. And I remember sitting in class and talking to my classmates and having conversation after conversation about the questions I'd written in my journal. So towards the end of my degree, I actually pulled that journal back out and I I just thought to myself, you know, I wonder how many of these questions have been answered. And I went down the list and I kid you not, every single one <sighs> of them had either been answered or I had the beginnings of an answer to those questions. Hmm. Now, I'm not going to lie, Bruce. I yeah. actually have different questions now. So I have <laughs> completely different questions, different parts of my faith that are still hard for me to grapple with. Uh-huh. Um but I think that's just the way it goes. The more yes. you learn, the more questions you have.
0: Mm-hmm. If you look down that list at this point in time from what you hear from people that you run into, what might be the a question that a lot of people have that you, found, that you found an answer to, but a lot of people are still maybe struggling with It might be good to hear an answer to right now?
1: So when I was an undergrad, a, a huge problem for me was just the problem of evil and i remember a favorite professor saying that the problem of evil was the reason that he wasn't a christian hmm. and so it was already a problem for me personally but then it became an even bigger problem because this professor that i really admired and respected you know that was his reason for not being a christian so i took an entire class on the problem of evil my senior year at biola and man my my mind was just opened up and I spent a lot of time studying what the scriptures say, and I found that most of the Bible, I believe, is written to answer the problem of evil, Hmm. to explain the genesis of evil, to explain why the world is so broken, what God thinks and feels about this broken state. And so emerging from that, I have some really challenging aspects of that problem, Mm -hmm. but for the most part, I can hear the objections that people make to God's existence around the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. And I've now come to the exact opposite side, where I think the existence of evil is actually a powerful argument for God's existence, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if you want me to go into that, but it was kind of world altering to be actually on the completely other side of that. So now when I experience evil and brokenness in the world, it is a testimony to me that God exists and that the ache that I'm feeling in this world tells me that things are not the way that they should be. And I get to one day look forward to a world where they will no longer be this way.
0: Yeah, I think if you want to take that a little further, that is one of the questions I know people usually ask me. Why did not God jump in and take care of it right now kind of thing? And And so go ahead.
1: Well, first and foremost, the whole argument from the problem of evil Assumes that there is a type of moral standard. And being a student of philosophy, I know that explaining this moral standard is very difficult if you do not have a theistic background. Mm. There's no way to quote unquote ground morality if there is no God. Well, when I say there's no way, um, there's no easy way. Mm -hmm. God is a very easy way to ground morality, a very rational, very reasonable, very simple way to ground morality. Outside of God, though, it becomes very difficult to explain how we have a universe that has moral properties, meaning that some things are right and some things are wrong, and that some things are not the way they should be, because that presumes that there is a way things should be. Now, these things are really easy to explain if there is a creator God who is Mm -hmm. himself good. But in the absence of a creator God who is good, we can't actually have a good explanation for why certain acts are right and why certain acts are wrong and why the state of the world is not as it should be. So take, for example, the coronavirus that we're experiencing right now in this world. I'm personally sitting in my car and it's raining outside and I'm sitting in my car because California is under shelter-in-place mandate. And so I, as a Christian, when I, I look at the coronavirus I see a symptom of evil. I see a world that is not as it should be. And I get to say that because I know that when this world was created, there was a way it was supposed to be. And now I am experiencing the opposite of that. I'm experiencing brokenness and disease in a way that I, as a human being was never supposed to experience. So far from that being an argument against God's existence, it actually points to the fact that God does exist, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to describe my current experience hmm. as broken or evil.
0: That's the real solidness of that is, and you know, if you dig deep in, it's the best answer out there for why there's evil in the world actually is Christianity.
1: Absolutely. I, I think truly Christianity has a very deep story and a profound answer to mm-hmm. why there is evil in the world yes. Um i love what apologist rabbi zacharias says he says the christian worldview is the only one that explains the reality of evil giving yes. both its cause and a solution for it while offering god-given sustenance and comfort in the midst of it mm. so i i have just personally become truly convinced that the Christian worldview is best able to account for evil. Mm -hmm. So it's no longer an objection for me personally. It's something that really contributes and bolsters
0: my faith. So taken off of that, let's move on to apologetics in general. That was a great example. The thing that I run into in Bible studies I'm doing is a lot of people are concerned about apologetics. It seems like a strange field, and I'll just love people, and somebody else may be an apologetic out there, but I don't want to turn people off by these arguments or anything like that. I'd like you to respond to that as you have on your website, uh, because I think that's an important thing for all of us to hear what, what you've written. So if you don't mind responding to that question.
1: Sure. Yes. So I'll I'll be the first to acknowledge that some people do apologetics really poorly. So when someone is providing a defense of the faith and they're Mm -hmm. doing it in such a way that tears down the person they're talking to, that is bad apologetics. So my best definition of apologetics is great answers to the tough questions. And I think when you think about apologetics that way, it becomes immediately clear that it is something that we should do as Christians. It is a very loving thing to answer the questions that people are asking. And I don't know, I get what some people are saying when they say, you know, apologetics is outdated. No one comes to faith because of apologetics. Mm
0: -hmm. And I would
1: agree, no one comes to salvation because of apologetics. Um, But no one comes to salvation because of our witness. But apologetics may be the means through which someone decides to commit their life to Christ, just as us witnessing to someone may be the means that they come to Christ. So we should take very seriously our responsibility Mm. to love people well enough to answer their questions. And our world is asking Christianity a lot of questions. And if I can take it one step further, I think Christians themselves have a lot of questions. They have a lot of questions about their faith. And there are a lot of unanswered questions that I'm convinced keep people from fully embracing Christianity. So even though they call themselves a Christian, they're not honoring God in a certain area of their life because they have all these doubts about him. I'm reading the scripture that where Jesus says we are to love the Lord, our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I've personally found it really hard to love the Lord with all of my mind while there are entire segments of my mind devoted to doubt.
2: Mm. Yeah.
1: And so my solution to that is to not just pretend that I have no doubt because that's dishonest. Instead, my, my solution is to be honest to God and say, God, I, I have these doubts Or to be like, I think it's Mark nine, maybe it's Mark seven, but there's a father who's asking Jesus to heal, heal his kid. And he says, you know, please help him if you can. And Jesus responds, if I can. (laughs) And, And this man says, I do believe help my unbelief. Right. And I found that's one of the best things that I can say in a season of doubt is I do believe in you, God. I do worship you. I do love you. Help my unbelief because there are these corners of my mind that are just filled with doubt about your existence or about your character.
0: You know, I think that's really good. Uh, uh, It's been quite a long time. It was back in the 80s, but one of the great apologists of our time, Josh McDowell, Mm -hmm. put out a uh, tape I remember listening to on prayer, and it was called Honest to God. And it was just about that very idea that God doesn't want us to come to Him and put on a front or a face or anything. He wants us to be honest, which includes all those doubts, because then He can work with us, because then we're being straightforward with Him and I thought about what you said on giving people the deeper reasons because they, you know, they're hungry for them, but they don't necessarily haven't heard them or don't look them up or haven't chased them down themselves. Because I saw a Barnum poll and study the other day that said that the number of Christians that have a full Christian worldview is is under 30%.
1: Crazy.
0: Yeah, and that that just boy, my heart sunk. And a lot of it, I think, Nina, comes from what you just said. It's the not having all those answers and and knowing what they are and realizing that the faith we have is truly anchored so deeply and so well, and the story is so beautiful with its depth and how much it covers that we should be locked into just fully being able to trust God. And He wants us, if we not trust Him, to come to Him and say that and then learn. Yes. Amen. Uh, exactly. I appreciate you going over apologetics and everything. I you know, I think you and I were talking before we got on about, I, I know, uh, you know, one thing that always comes to my mind is the, is the picture of a, a courtroom. You've got Satan in there accusing, you've got Jesus defending us and everything, and the Father is the judge and whatnot. But, but we're on the witness stand, and on the witness stand, we're just supposed to be telling about what we know— and what we've learned from God and why it makes sense and why it's rational, we're not, we're not there to argue somebody into the kingdom. You can't do that. Right. But you sure can put out rational reasons that, that the Holy Spirit can then take those seeds and, and work them into somebody's heart and bring somebody around to him and around to Jesus. Uh, and I think that's the beauty of it. My, I, I can't, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. But I can just talk about what God has shown me and how he exposed me to different things like the the purpose of how to explain evil and all that.
1: So true. I think additionally, we can sow seeds, but Mm -hmm. also we can tear down walls that stand between people and God. Yes. I think the Bible is pretty clear that mankind rejects him because Mm -hmm. of sin. And so I, as an apologist, someone that does apologetics, I don't make the mistake of believing that anyone is rejecting God because they don't have a reason, good reason to believe in God. Mm -hmm. I think scripture is pretty clear that there is a clear witness as to who God is. However, I found about myself that I am really good at lying to myself. And I'm really good at talking myself out of all sorts of things that I know to be true.
0: Oh, not me. And
1: this Dina. is not you.
0: No, not, not me. This. You're
1: just such a greater Christian than I am.
0: Yeah, that's Just I'm just so perfect.
1: So perfect. Oh. Well, what what Romans one does say about you and me yeah. is that we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Mm-hmm. And so I think great apologetics simply tears down what stands between man and God so that they can see what actually stands between them and God. Because so many people walk away from Christianity because of sin. Mm -hmm. But the reason they say they're walking away from Christianity is some intellectual objection to the faith. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I think it's my job to tear down that objection not to force them to honor and love God because God gives them that choice. I simply want them to be aware of the reason that they are actually rejecting God. Um, and It is not an intellectual problem with Christianity at all, even though they may think it is. I think it's very loving on our part if we tear down those intellectual objections so they can actually see um, the relational gap that stands between them and God.
0: Well, I think I think you're absolutely right. You know that's that's what Paul says, right? That our arguments, the arguments or the the defense of the faith, actually do destroy things that stand in the way. And at that point in time, your your heart's left with trying to answer an explanation for that. Yes. Looking here uh, at the different things in your life, and the people you'd run into, you're involved with with the church, and the school here connected to the church. What are some of the things that uh, you're finding are helpful for the younger generation? And I say that as an old guy, um, mm-hmm. but as the people you see coming into your school and into the church that are on the younger side of things, what's helpful for them or, or what are you finding that you uh, are doing as a church and a school to help them?
1: First of all, I'm really encouraged by the students that I work with. Mm-hmm. I, I find that the students that I get to spend my life with they love Jesus very deeply they're very committed to him they're very committed to the church and just take heart if anyone's listening and maybe is despairing about the future of the church I am actually very excited about the students that I work with I love them wholeheartedly and I believe in them some things that I am finding are really helpful The first, you have this value in Thrive School called risking real relationship. Not that that's a new concept, but that's how we say it to each other. And we're finding that that is something that has been absent from their, not just Christian experience, but life experience. Yeah. Is having a inner circle where they are completely unfiltered, unfiltered with. So they tell everything to, when they sin, they confess it. When they Mm -hmm. have a doubt about God, they will share that doubt. And I have found that a lot of our students, it takes them maybe three months before they begin to take their Christian mask off Mm -hmm. and figure out, I need to be who I really am because Jesus can't transform a false version of myself. And so for him to really change who I am, I'm going to have to really be who I am. So that is something that we're finding is working really well with our students. And what that looks like for us is we put them in small groups. This is not a novel idea, but I think a small group where we meet consistently, we're not always changing who is meeting with whom. Right. I think it takes that consistency to build trust for people to eventually say, okay, I'm going to risk taking my mask off and hope that you're going to still be there to love me, even when I'm the less pleasant version of myself. And on our side in the church, we're having to be really grace-filled so that when people (sighs) do confess sin, we're not instantly booting them from our program (laughs) because they're actually doing what we ask them to do.
0: Right. And that's great. And I think the two things there, and this is why I could feel your authenticity, you know, just from from reading what you write, giving those around you that authenticity, as you probably had as a child growing up. That's fabulous. That's, you know, nothing can beat that when it's tied into making sure the grace is extended, because God loved me in spite of all my stuff and died for me in spite of all my stuff. And that is the way that we grow is when we come to him honestly and can allow him to change those things inside of us and show us new paths and new ways.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Wow. Yeah. I've been rolling along here. I just realized, uh, hit, hit about the 30 minute or so mark and, uh, (laughs) can go longer. Didn't want to take any more of your time as though. I wanted to ask you one other thing, if you don't mind. Of course. You know, as people are struggling with the coronavirus and the, the COVID-19 and how it's affecting their lives. How are you keeping yourself positive? And yet at the same time, you're honest about different things going on that you struggle with. But what are you doing that, uh, that you see maybe God has exposed to you during this time that's so different than the rest of our lives have been?
1: Mm. Well, to be honest, Bruce, I'm normally really good in a crisis. Uh-huh. And so... How I've been reacting to this particular crisis has been very surprising to me. Yeah. Um, I'm normally really rational, very calm, very steady. It's like the whole world can be going bananas, but it won't hit me until everyone else has calmed down.
2: Uh huh. So
1: I think I I think I'm sure my world is okay before I let myself react to what's going on. Yeah. But this particular time. I've remained steady. I've remained rational, but I have found myself just so sad, so Mm. heartbroken with what Mm -hmm. is happening in the world and on the level of disease, but also on the level of even for the people that are never going to be affected physically by the coronavirus, how this is going to impact them economically and the anxiety that we're seeing skyrocket already and There's just all these factors that have been coming into my mind. Hmm. So something that the Lord has been saying to me in the midst of all of that is that it is okay to be sad. Sad things are happening, and it is a perfectly theologically appropriate response for me to sit in sadness. Yeah. I don't think... It is theologically appropriate for me to abandon myself to sadness, mm-hmm. but to sit there for a moment and to, to cry out to God, to craft a psalm of lament, like David does so many times in scripture,
2: mm-hmm. all
1: of that, I think, is an invitation from God to really join him in how he feels about this situation. Yes. And he's personally he's personally challenging me that if I can't sit down and mourn what is happening, then eventually I'm going to disassociate from my world and say, oh, you know, what's happening is not really that bad. So I'm going to create a fantasy world instead of living in the real world. Or and I think this would be an even sadder response. I'm going to end up being frustrated at God for not stepping in and doing something. Yeah, And instead, I felt him inviting me to really join him where he's at. Um, He's not stuck in sadness, but I think that God is so heartbroken over what is happening in the world. And he's inviting me to join in that heartbreak, to sit down and to mourn, to cry out to him, to tell him the injustice of this moment. And so it sounds... (laughs) That sounds like opposite of what you asked, Bruce, Mm -hmm. but I have found that when I sit down and I actually set aside some times to be sad, I have found that my sadness is lighter throughout the rest of the day.
0: Yeah. I know it may sound the opposite, but I mean, as Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And and this is one of those times where we, we do have mourning for all that's going on. Like right. you said though, you don't abandon yourself to it,
2: right. Uh,
0: I think that's an important point and to you know to let everybody know that it is th- it is okay to have those. That's real,
1: yes <sighs> i love I love that part of part of the psalms of lament, they always end with a vow to praise God, so. Basically, in the midst of the messiest of complaints that David is yelling towards heaven, he always ends them with a vow to praise God. And this is something my friend Alyssa pointed out to me um, just recently, which was so encouraging to my heart. Because I don't know about you, Bruce, but sometimes it feels so inappropriate to yell at God and to tell him <laughs> how his world is. And Yeah. But it's modeled for me in scripture. He literally inspired Those Psalms. And so I believe that God wants us to be honest with Him, even if that honesty involves momentary conversations with God where we're complaining against Him. Mm -hmm. But I think it's so important to end them with praise and to say, I I will trust you still. I will praise you still. In the midst of me not knowing why you have allowed this to happen Mm. in our world, my my heart still chooses you. Yes. So if anyone is listening and confused about how to not get stuck in sadness, I think that's the key is you have to end your time of mourning by declaring hope and Mm. saying, I'm not running away from what's happening in my world, but I am going to cling to hope. I'm going to choose to believe that what is happening right now is not the end of the story.
0: Mm -hmm. No, that's right. We know the end of the story.
1: We do, and it's a good one.
0: Mhm, it is a good one, a reason for hope. Yes. Wow, that's great. Anything else that uh, you'd like to say before we go? Because that that was a beautiful way to end on. I think.
1: No, just thank you for allowing me to share.
0: All right, Dina. Well, when we post this in a couple of weeks, we'll put up uh, how people can get a hold of you. But it is you have your own own blog and site at uh, Dina Davidson dot com so people can find you there. And thank you for taking this time and thank you for giving us the insights that you have and the experiences and showing us, you know, different ways that being in awe of God has affected your life. So thank you very much.
1: You are welcome.